we used to sort of rely on top-ups for projects. We, we don't really do that anymore. If we are looking at a project and we think it needs $1.1 million worth of capital, we'll implement that at the start of the project. You are listening to the Property Developer Podcast, your home for tips, ideas, and inspiration to help take your developing to the next level. Now, here's your host, Justin Getty. Hello, and welcome to episode 84 of the show. Thanks for joining me. How are you doing? I'm well. Although I have to say, there's a weird time in Melbourne at the moment. We're still in lockdown. There's been tradies protesting in the streets. The state government has shut down the building industry. And this week, we even had an earthquake. I mean, WTF. Anyway, I'm doing okay and trying to keep things moving along. I've been making some steady, if not slow, progress on my development project. We were actually due to finish in two days' time. But then the industry got shut down and all work has stopped, which is obviously very frustrating to put it politely. We've actually finished about half of the townhouses and received occupancy permits for all of them, but we still need to formally complete the remaining ones, which only have some slight things to finish like paint touch-ups and some caulking and some minor landscaping. I've actually got the statement of compliance done and today we got the titles back, which is normally a pretty exciting time because it means in 14 days you can book settlements in and start getting paid. But because the site's closed, we actually don't know when the settlements are going to take place. There's also one final unit that I still have available that I need to sell, but I can't get access to that yet. So it's probably a few weeks away till I can get that back on the market. So it's a strange time on that project. If you want to check out what it looks like, have a look at the show's Facebook and Instagram pages and you'll see what the almost finished site looks like. I think it looks pretty awesome, but go and check it out and and see what you think. We're so very close to finishing after all these years and all the ups and downs on this project, but I guess I should have known that there would be one final hiccup towards the end. But hopefully we're not too far off being completely finished there. On my other project, I finally got my plans endorsed by the local council. Took a lot of pushing and cajoling, but I finally got it done. And I'm now working on finalising all the documentation that's required to get the building permit. And then getting everything set for construction to get started. It's also been pretty slow going on this project in order to get things out of the ground. But hopefully once building gets started, things stick to schedule and go fairly smoothly. On a more positive note, the uptake of the property developer training continues to be amazing. I'm really blown away. And thank you once again to all the people that have joined up. It's been very humbling and gratifying that you have opted into the course. So thank you very much. If you are interested in learning the fundamentals of property development in your own time and at your own pace, then be sure to head over to www.propertydevelopertraining.com and take a look at what's available. I take you step by step through the development process so you know exactly what you need to do to find a site, run a feasibility, 
and complete a small scale property development project, be that a duplex or a three or four unit site. So be sure to check that out. Or if you just want to get an idea about how ready you might be to become a property developer, then take the property developer quiz. It's at www.propertydevelopertraining.com forward slash quiz. Now, if you want to stay up to date with what's happening on my projects, be sure to check out the show's Instagram and Facebook feeds for regular video updates and other things that catch my eye. Search for the handle of Property Developer Podcast. And don't forget, there is a rich archive of past episodes if you want to go back and take a listen to all my past guests. And there's some absolute crackers in the vault. I was thinking the other day of my chat with former Victorian Premier and trained architect Ted Ballew in episode 73 and how we talked about the decay and disappointment of the planning system and I can uh, certainly say I've had some disappointment with the planning system over the last few months. So that's chat. that chat is definitely worth a listen. And all the past episodes of the show can be found at propertydeveloperpodcast.com or on your favourite podcast app. Okay, on to today's guest, Matthew Chamberlain from Chamberlain Property. Matt has been doing small-scale property developments across Melbourne for a number of years now and shares some great lessons that he's picked up from completing more than a dozen projects. We cover the importance of research and understanding the local market that you're working in so that you can prepare a great feasibility, how resilience is something that's really helped Matt get through the many challenges he's faced over the years, and how his business probably grew too quickly in the first couple of years. Keep an ear out for how Matt likes to shape his feasibilities and the key metric he looks at to ensure his land cost is not too high. I think you will enjoy this conversation as much as I did, so let's kick things off by finding out what Matthew's favourite meal is. It's a very easy one for me, mate. That's steak every day of the week. (laughs) Simple man. Yeah, you certainly look like a, a meat and potatoes kind of guy. I am, I am. <laughs> How do you like to eat your steak? Medium rare. Yeah, and what cut? Uh, I like porterhouse. Yeah. Yeah. No porterhouse, Bernays sauce. You, you can't really get much better in life. Yeah. Uh, yes, and what kind of sides are, do you opt for? No, no. No sides required, mate. Just the steak. <laughs> oh, the pure protein. Yeah. well it's good to finally have you on the show uh we've been uh, connected for quite some time so you're a property developer can you give us a bit of an idea of the kind of projects that you do and how you got into property developing yeah sure so um i was working for some developers and builders for about seven years um, setting up a lot of underground infrastructure um, and, you know, was very curious about the industry and then finally made the leap in, uh, 2013, um, sort of started the business with my wife, Jessica. Um, and we started off in a lot of sort of low to mid spec townhouses, predominantly, you know, in Melbourne's inner West. Um, and then in more recent years, we sort of made a switch over to some architectural townhouses um, 
some of that stuff's more towards the inner east of Melbourne. Um, and then, yeah, now we do a bit of a variety of everything. Um, that, that's us. Yeah. So how many projects would you say you've knocked over in that period of time? Yeah, around about 15 or 16, yeah. All right, so you got you got a few projects under your belt. Yeah, lots of learnings, um, lots of headaches, but it's been fun. Yeah. So most of it's been that sort of three or four unit site type of project? Yeah, so we started with three units, very simple sort of single story stuff. Um, quickly kind of switched into the four units seemed to find that that was just a good fit for us. Um, it also seems to stack up financially a bit better than what a lot of the three-unit sites we were seeing were. Um, and it also just seems to be a good amount of risk. You know, it's not too hard on the pre-sale requirements. Um, there is still a little bit of flexibility on funding options. Um, so, yeah, we stayed a lot in that sort of four units and just replicated that for um, quite a while. We've done some larger stuff into sort of the seven townhouses. Um, but really like it in that space. Yeah, yeah. sort of two to five um, units. It just feels right. Yeah. And I think you've worked with joint venture partners or uh, investment partners through all of those projects. Is that correct? Yeah. So we, we started off just on our own initially, um, then quickly raised some debt partners in the first couple of years and then of recent it's mainly all been equity partners um, which is just a nice way I think to do business yeah and so what's the key differences between those two types of arrangements the debt versus equity investors uh, look for us it's just nice to have the project stacked with more equity as opposed to sort of bank debt on top of debt from potential investors there's obviously a lot of pressure on the time delivery with the debt partners as opposed to equity partners. Um, also sort of find the people that you come across that want to invest into projects with you, especially when it's equity, sort of seems to be that really long-term relationships um, that you can just kind of continue for the next sort of 10 years and just grow together. Um, where I find some of the stuff with the debt arrangements is just really transactional. So. And so with the equity partners, that's they buy a stake or invest a stake into the entity that you do and then they get a share of the profits at the end? Is that sort of how it works in the most simple form? Yeah, that's right. We sort of found over the years that it seems to be a really good, a really good capital amount, you know, from that two hundred to sort of $350,000 mark. It's just the... Um, an achievable amount for investors. So quite often, most of the projects we're looking at always seem to need around about a million dollars of capital these days. So quite often, we'll you know we'll set that up with three or four investors across that um, project entity. Will be set up and bank account, cash flow trackers, and we'll see that through all the way to settlements, and then, and then pay everyone out accordingly for their share. Um, yeah, I just find it's a really nice, clean system. It's not too stressful for anyone. And there's a lot of a lot of people with that sort of barriers to entry to get into development that 
um, you know, they may not have a million dollars laying around, which is fair enough to, to sort of get into a project. Um, so it just sort of seems to work on a couple of different fronts. Yeah. And so are they people that are interested in getting into development themselves or they're just more interested in investing into a property in a more proactive way? I'd say sort of maybe 30% of people that are somewhat interested in getting into development um, and then you know, maybe the 70% would be sort of people um, getting closer to retirement, just being a little bit more active. Uh, but, yeah, don't want to just sort of rely on, on the speculation of capital growth and stuff that a lot of the baby boomers did for quite a while. Uh, so, yeah, it, it's a good balance. And, yeah, we're just really comfortable with those size projects. And given that you've done so many of those sized projects now, what would you say some of the key lessons are that you've picked up along the way? Justin, there's been quite a few, to be honest. Um, <laughs> That's why. Just give me the key ones. <laughs> um, look, I think lessons um a lot of it i think comes down to research you know i see a lot of stuff now where where people will be looking at developing and they just find a couple of comps to sort of compare their prices um i find you know you, you really can't just be relying on real estate agents and so forth just to get your your approximate sales you, you need to be digging down into sort of 10 or 20 comps yourself breaking that down into sales per square meter and so forth, um, really analysing which, which product that, that is feasible and most importantly sellable um, is a really big one. Just just anyone can sort of get together some sort of a feasibility, um, but the, the figures that you went into it are just so important. Um, and if you've done all the research yourself, then you can really sort of sleep well knowing that, no, no, no. Like when I go and speak to an agent, you've already got some idea what they're going to tell you and you can sort of say on the spot, yeah, this is this is correct or, or no, they're inflating it, you know, to get the site sold or whatever the reasons may be. Um, so, yeah, I just find that research is just such a big part of, of what we do. Yeah. yeah, well, I've just put out a property developer training program and in that I talk a lot about market research and the importance of understanding the sales in the local area when you're working on your feasibility. And it doesn't actually take that long to become something of an area expert when you're tracking all the sales in that area over a three, four month period. You can actually end up knowing more about the sales in the area than some of the agents that are working in that area. I agree. Yeah, in, in ten to twenty hours, once you've done it a few times, you can you can get it broken out pretty well. Um, I think one of the other big learnings that we found is, you know, um, running a project sort of more off a of feasibility. Um, we quickly learned that we had to switch to sort of feasibility and cash flow trackers, um, and that's just been an absolute godsend. Um, you know. It's very complicated when you're halfway through one project or multiple projects 
about knowing what's been spent and at any point in time what that project's cost you. Um, so you just got to get to that level of, yes, it, it's quite painful and every project has a new entity and every entity has a new bank account. And every bank account has a, a tracker and, um, yeah, it's all just managed. I think that's just takes so much stress out of it. Yeah. How come you got to that point where you trying to manage multiple projects just using one bank account or what were, how were you having issues there or what brought you to that yeah. realisation? It's a good question. Um, we initially, I think, had about two projects running with one bank account. That wasn't too bad. Um, but we sort of started with our three-unit project that I mentioned and we quickly jumped into um, having four projects running. Um, not un- not under construction at the same time, but um, yeah, we basically just had to quickly quickly switch to, to keep everything independent and, and insular. Um, and you know, another big thing that we learned is we used to sort of rely on um, top ups for projects. We, we don't really do that anymore. Um, if we are looking at a project and we think it needs. $1.1 million worth of capital will implement that at the start of the project. Um, it's just so much safer, yeah. Uh, but it just takes a couple of years to sort of get to that to that understanding and that um, headspace, I guess. Yeah. yeah, that is a point that I was making recently to someone just around a lesson or when you're getting into developing, uh, something to be aware of is having enough capital being liquid for the whole project because you don't want to get to a point in the project where you run out of cash or you have to start scrambling around and you're desperate to find some money to be able to pay for things that would be a very stressful scenario. Yeah, yeah, it's so true. And I think, yes, it's good to be optimistic with timelines, but if you're doing cash flow projections, it's good to to be the opposite. Um, So just little things that you kind of learn along the way. Um, otherwise, you just cause yourself stress. Yeah, well, uh, you and I obviously have the same hairdresser and the same uh, lessons that we've learnt thanks to uh, the loss of hair along the way. So, you, yeah, we both look like property developers. Yeah, yeah thanks for that. <laughs> <laughs> and can you tell me what you reckon you've learned about yourself along the way? through property developing? I think the biggest thing that I've learned is is just the amount of um, resilience that you need to do property development. Um, You're quite often faced with a lot of big decisions that you have to carefully consider. Um, So for me personally, it's just important to really sort of um, take your time with things be really conscious of things like your health and your stress levels and stuff so that you can you can carefully think some of these decisions through. I don't like to rush many things. So from that from that angle, property development suits a bit because it is a bit of a slow moving beast. Um, but yeah, definitely resilience is just it's a big one. And I kind of like that. I like that it teaches us that. Uh, teaches us patience. Um, yeah. So there's some good characteristics in in it. Um, yeah. I think one of the challenges that you face 
making decisions is that you don't have all the information available to you. You're trying to make your best decision based on the information that you have at hand and sometimes it's not it's not everything. You just have to make a call. Yeah, yeah, which a lot of people don't like to do these days. Um, but, again, I think it's a good it's a good thing to, to learn. Um, you know, there's, there's a great lot of lessons if you, if you do it carefully. Um, and, you know, I think the other big thing that we sort of learned is just um, really keeping an eye on your, on your downside of each stage of the projects. Um, you know, if you pay attention to that and, and you do it in the right sequence, um, it just really de-risks the projects. You know, for example, if you're looking at you purchased a piece of land or you already own the piece of land and you're considering sort of committing 25 grand to some town planning um, fees for architects and planners and so forth, and you're aware that, okay, when I spend this, my downside is, is 25000 and um, you've gone out and you've confirmed that the upside may be an extra hundred grand on your land value and you just go through it in those stages of like, yeah, let's progress to planning permit. Yep. Okay. Our sales are holding up strong. Our build estimates are holding up strong. Let's progress the building permit, and so on, and just really watch your downside for each stage of the project. Um, if you do that and, you, and you're staying in this sort of size projects, it's just very low risk, um, which ultimately is what we're about. Yeah. Yeah, it's a really good point, and it is actually quite easy to identify what some of those downsides and the risks are at the different stages of the project and also what some of the mitigation steps or mitigation measures that you can put in place to help alleviate some of those risks. Yeah, yeah. And like, you know, we, we tend to involve QS estimates um, early on now on our drawings. Um, we're, involved, we're sort of doing our value management way earlier in our design process as opposed to just the tender stage. Um, you know, so there's a lot of ways to sort of mitigate a lot of this stuff. Um, but, yeah, I just I like that about development. I like that you can just take a really staged approach to it. Um, as long as you don't have too much of a rush for your capital back, it doesn't have to hold you up on your timeline much. You just have to implement it at the right points. Yeah, yeah well, you can see when they're coming, you know, when they're, Arriving, it's not, usually not a surprise. <laughs> um, yeah. Just touching on your comment around value management, so what are the things that you're looking for when you enter into that value management phase? Look, um, of recent, we've sort of been doing it in conjunction with, you know, two architects, one, you know, our preferred builder and so forth, and, and we'll, we'll do it all together across a couple of hours on, on each project. And just sort of considering, okay, yes, we've got this cladding spec you know, at our first submission. Uh, is this going to be right? How is this product doing? Like at the moment, we're dealing with the timber price increases. Um, so, you know, a lot of it's dealing with, you know, external claddings. Um, internal spec, yes, but not so much at the earlier stages. We, t- we do tend to do that stuff later on. Um, but just even looking at, okay, we've got um, first floor walls sitting over these long spans on, on the ground floor. Um, you know, can we implement new walls? Can we do this? You know, 
just to sort of minimize a lot of our steel and so forth. Um, and just being really um, cautious with our briefs to the architects. Um, it, it does throw another level of complexity at it when you are trying to do architectural townhouses as opposed to some of the lower spec. Um, but it is it also ends up in a good result. You know, you've got a project that you can be quite proud of. Um, you enjoy driving past. Um, it just does add a lot of layers to, to value managing. Yeah. And what's one of the highlights of a project that you've delivered in terms of something not going right or something being tricky, like a challenge that you faced in delivering a project that you could share with us that was a great learning opportunity for you? Yeah, yep. Um, so in our earlier years, we, we had one builders um, probably past frame stage, not far off, off lock-up stage, um, just run out of money. Um, you know, not as a result of our project. Our, our bank was on time with all the payments, but they're just other projects they had running. Um, and all of the trades just stopped turning up to the site. Um, so that was a really fun one to deal with. Um, you know, you can only you can only call their office and demand side meetings and, and so forth for so long. Um, and it was quite interesting because you know you go through that process and then you have to start getting some legal advice and you have to listen to some of the lawyers' opinions on, on how to tackle things. And, um, sometimes they can just be extremely black and white you know, are in the contract and, and so forth and issue this notice. And, um, that wasn't something that we were comfortable in doing. Um, so we ended up in the end setting up a meeting with the builder. Uh, this was right before the lock-up payment was about to be due, which is such a critical part, as you know, as a developer. It's probably the one point of the project where the builders go from sort of, you know, cash flow negative to cash flow positive. Um you know, which ultimately is why a lot of the lawyers were sort of suggesting, yeah, that's the point where you would, you know, consider ending a contract. And we just didn't want to do it. Um, so we ended up renegotiating a bit of a retention agreement with with the builder, um, which was great. And we, we negotiated paying some of the trades um, with like a loan agreement with the builder. And, and it worked and we got the project completed. Um, but that was probably one of our most stressful points early years um, but it was good you know I don't think you know, a lot of people go in and, and deal with that stuff too well so test you <laughs> and what was the key takeout or lesson that you brought forward with you from there I think more just around like just being outcome focused um, like I was saying you know a lot of people just caught up in the black and white of, of options but really just focusing on what we wanted and that was the project to be built and completed and they were all sold and the buyers wanted to settle. Um, so we we're only going to consider a path that was going to deliver that result. So, actually, yeah, I think that was a good one. Actually, didn't you have some issues on a recent build with your builder towards the end with some quality yeah. issues or something else that's happened? Earlier last year, we had a builder um, building a seven-unit project for us. This was like 
in between a lot of the early stage lockdowns. And um, again, a couple of trades weren't turning up to, to finish it. So we, we got them to agree to, that we could have some of our own trades come on site and complete it. Um, and again, that's, that's got us over the line. So, yeah. Builders, builders have definitely contributed to some of my hair loss, Justin. That's sure. <laughs> well, I was about to ask you a question about any advice that you'd have for people out there who are maybe looking for a builder or how do you go about finding a good builder to partner with on a project? Yeah, look, it's a, it's a great question. Um, I tend to lean on you a lot for that one, Justin, and, and check who you're building with currently. That's been one of the more recent ones. Um, <laughs> But look, where we start, we tend to go to a lot of our building inspectors and ask them for, for feedback on um, who's turning up, the least amount of defects and so forth. Um, it's something more commercial. We go to a lot of the QSs um, and ask them who's building on time, uh, stuff like that. You know. And then thirdly, the banks tend to have a bit of a list of, of, of builders that they they like or dislike to work with. Uh, so I think all three of those avenues are pretty good. Even surprisingly, real estate agents tend to have a pretty good pretty good idea on who's delivering um, quality stuff because you know, I've got a lot of good relationships with real estate agents and um, they don't like to be doing um, final walkthroughs and settlements with, with any issues. Um, so they're actually really good when it comes to that. Yeah, I absolutely agree that local real estate agents are a really good option in terms of having some insight into who the good and the not-so-good builders are in their local patch for those exact reasons that you just said. They don't like to have walkthroughs with poor-quality buildings that they've got to hand over. Yeah. I mean, I think the biggest thing that we've seen with builders over the years is they just tend to go through these cycles where, um, you know, they will build one project for us and they will do an incredible job. And then the second year will come along and they may have too much in their pipeline on that year and you know, there's a bit less supervision going on. And so it's really dependent on you know, where in the cycle they are, you know, um, whether they've got the right amount of staff under them or, you know, front of office or admin. Uh, I respect it's a very hard game building, uh, especially in a lot of this residential market. So yeah, I, I give credit where it's due. It's not an easy, not an easy thing. Oh, it's a good point actually. There's just so much regulation that builders have to comply with, and so many moving parts. It's uh, yeah, I wouldn't want to be a builder. Yeah, not not to mention you're dealing with sort of twenty four to twenty six trades roughly on these kind of townhouses, and you know that's that's sort of 24 to 26 personalities and business owners and um, it's probably like managing 26 children. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I often think that when I'm wandering around on site and you go, wow, look at all the people that are working here on my project. Carpenters, painters. Who, yeah, it's, it's pretty amazing sometimes to think that your efforts and your vision is contributing to these people being on site, but yeah, it's a lot of different people. I'm certainly glad I only have to coordinate with the builder to get stuff done. Yeah, no, it sure is. Yeah. 
And if you could go back uh, and change one thing about your developing career, what do you think it would be? I think ultimately I'd probably take it a little bit slower, you know. Um, you know, I did jump into my first sort of four or five projects pretty fast. Um, so I would just take a bit more time with it, yeah. Well, that's interesting. Most people say they wish they'd gone a bit quicker. Yes, yes, I see that too. Um, but no, that's definitely my take, you know, just, just enjoy it. Like I said, I think it's a really good industry done in the right way uh, you can mitigate a lot of risk with upside but yeah just take your time with it and, and make your decisions very carefully so how come you think you got into it a bit too quick you were doing your first two projects or first five projects too quickly what 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 were you worried about or what issues did you face i think just a lot of the uh initial teething issues that you get into when you get into developments, you know, trying to trying to find a builder that could handle that initial capacity with us and grow at the same time. Um, that gave us a lot of headaches in the earlier days. You know, when we started, funding was very easy, um, which was good. The market was very easy. Uh, so sales was always really good. Um, we weren't dealing with a lot of these issues that we're dealing with now with construction cost increases quite as fast. Um, but still, I think, you know, when you start off, you've got to sort of have a really good financial understanding of, um, of your feasibilities, of your trackers and, 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 you know, equity and debt and all of these really important terms, uh, which you don't necessarily have on your first one, two, three projects. Uh, so I think it's just... It's important thing. We were really lucky in the sense that our projects have all been very profitable. They've also all been very accurate compared to our initial feasibilities, um, which has been nice. But you know, if you, not everyone's that that fortunate. If you get into take on three or four projects and you're not making good profits, um, then yeah, you can run into some, some cash flow problems pretty fast. But still, just take your time, enjoy it. I think it's a really great option for people, whether they're employed and they're just looking to build equity in the background, um, you know, across a two or three year period. I think it's a great avenue. Yeah, and it's definitely a skill that once you've got, it's like riding the bike, isn't it? You could do a project on the side every two, three years, bring in a couple of extra 100K if that's what you're interested in and continue on with your day job as sort of a, a bit of a hobby. Yeah, and like if you're not, uh, if you're not selling down your projects, um, there's just a, a huge amount of savings in, in the feasibility for you, you know. The average amount of sales GST that we're seeing on these such projects is like 180000 not to mention you know, agents' commissions of 60000 And you're like, okay, if you, you know, that's before you even get to income tax. So, you know, you're probably giving away sort of 20% of your project by selling it down for turnover and so forth. So if you've already got a great um, employment or wage or so forth, then you're literally sort of, you know, developing and you're acquiring these assets at wholesale rate. And, and if you do that slowly... 
it's just a really good way to build your wealth without um, a lot of stress. And I think a lot of the stress comes from if you're doing it slowly and you're not relying on it for your turnover, then um, it gives you some flexibility, right? So we've seen recently, you know, 2018 was a pretty hard, hard year to sell in. Uh, I remember both me and you were going through at the same time. If you're just sort of doing one and you've got your job on the side, it's no big deal to sort of hold that project for an extra year and extend it burned out. Um, so there's just so many advantages to doing it that way um, for people that are sort of set up within their jobs. Um, I think where people see the, the big jump is when, they, when they're making that switch from their job to developing full-time. It takes a lot of sort of thought of how you're going to make that leap and, and, you know, have borrowing power and, you know, or do you join venture with people that have borrowing power and, and raise equity? Or, um, that's when it gets a little bit more complex. Um, but if you are, yeah, if you are working and, and you're just investing in the side, very, very simple. Yeah, you're just uh, always looking for the capital. That's the name of the game with developing, isn't it? Yeah, especially especially with the, the current lending requirements. I mean, the good thing is now it looks like there's some signs that the big four banks are, are really getting back into the, the construction market, which is nice to see. Uh, I've really been sitting on the sidelines since probably about 2016 that I think that I recall. Um, and, you know, a lot of these sort of private players have been stepping in, but there's been such a huge gap between them you know, the bank funding rates of 4 to 5% to some of these second-tier players, you know, 9 to 11%. Um, really surprised that not too many people jumped in the middle there. But, um, yeah, it's, it's very welcome to see the big four stepping back in with rates being as low as they are. I mean, no one's getting funding quite as cheap as what they are. You know, with low interest rates in the market, looks pretty, pretty stable for the time being. So it's, it's a good time actually to sort of be getting into development. Um, how long for? No one knows. <laughs> but well, yeah, it's, it's probably a good sign that the banks are looking to get back in because they've got way better analysts than you or me uh, have access to, and way better data. So would indicate to me that they're feeling pretty comfortable about where the property market is headed over the next five years. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, they were quite hesitant in, in 16 because they were just concerned that, you know, if things slow down or there's too much, too many investors in the market or um, overseas purchases, then just, they're not going to be able to sell their assets as quick as they would like. Uh, with clearance rates rising, you know, they know that they can get out of these these properties if they have to so they're very comfortable well let's hope they're right and things go from strength to strength in property over the coming years tell me matthew what's your top tip for developers out there who are looking to take their business to the next level look i think it's probably um Probably two things. Um, do, do not try and develop, you know, with just the feasibility. Make sure you have your feasibility and, and cash flow trackers 
established from the start. Um, and the second biggest tip that I probably ever got was just when you're doing your site acquisition and you've finished your DD, you know, and when I say finished your DD, I mean that you've, you know, you've looked into all the services and easements and so forth and the town plan has done a review on the site. Uh, your architect's reviewed a land use plan for you. You know, you've got a bit of a prelim build on it. You've got some sales comps on it. Um, and you can kind of end up with your end sort of GRV on the site. Then just really make sure you're not pushing that 30 to 33% of your end value on your site acquisition. Um, and the reason I say this is it, it doesn't sound much. And, and, you know, over the years we've seen it, we've played around with this a little bit, but it's just such a such an important KPI to keep an eye on during your site acquisitions. Um, it just makes the, the whole process so much easier if the feasibility's got the right shape. Um, and that's, yeah, I've, I've kind of learned that, you know, within these feasibilities you can kind of see, yeah, my, my build allowance is working with the shape of my feasibility. My land is also working and everything just kind of comes along nicely. Um, whereas if you sort of force one area too hard, then you're trying to get your build down too low to deliver on the right margin. And if you try and force anything, things can break. Um, so it's just such a critical first step. Yeah. I think at the moment, if you were trying to push your build rates down to make a project work, you're going to get into big trouble. It's a very good point. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and you mentioned cash flow tracker before is that just like a software an accounting type software like zero or is it something else uh look you can definitely do it through some of these software programs um we do it just during just through excel um but yeah it's basically you know you have your project bank account set up you have your feasibility and all of your allowances set up within the zero um and then at the end of every month as you reconcile your zero uh, you can really sort of see okay this is exactly what we spent next to our allowances within our feasibility and then the trackers will forecast it out into the months that that those funds are required um, based off the timeline of the project and it's just a really organized way to, to sort of run it and the reason for that is when you're doing your feasibility and your trackers at the start you can see okay this project needs 600,000 for the first year, 400,000 for year two, you know, in, in simplified terms. Um, and if I do that, then I'm running with a 50 or 100 grand surplus on that project. Uh, and just kind of, yeah, it just gives you transparency into not just your profit and, and loss, but also into your balance sheet and what the funds are going to do at the end of that project whether that's going to increase equity or, or be paid back to investors or so forth. I uh, just couldn't recommend it enough. Yeah. Oh, very good. And then what would you say is the biggest trap that you see developers falling into or that they can fall into? Probably the biggest thing that I see is, is just um, a lot of planning permits like people will go through the process and spend 12 or 18 months getting planning permits to projects that just don't make sense. Um, 
So quite often it may be that the feasibility is off. Um, but not just that, you know, we all know that feasibilities can all move around quite a lot through the life of the project. Um, but more importantly, that they've gone and, and designed a project that is not what the market wants. Um, and there's just nothing really worse than that because, you know, you might have spent 18 months getting through to that stage and then you're going to market and um, things aren't selling. So you just got to be really cautious, with, you know, when you're doing your research from the start that you are having a good look at, at, at okay, in this area, if we're talking about townhouses, um, this product makes sense. How many days on the market was that? Or, or speaking to your local agents and saying, look, which product has sold the best for you? Um, and normally agents are pretty good at that because they ultimately want their job to sort of be easy. Um, and, you know, I think a lot of them also want to be part of developments that are a little bit nicer um, and not just your, your typical cookie-cutter approach. Um, so I think, you know, it's just so important to involve everyone from that early stage and just make sure it's a good product. Yeah. Yeah, it does come back to that early research where you're looking at sales because you can have a good look at the floor plans and analyze them, look at them, what is it that was attractive to the buyers? Was it a bigger kitchen? Was it a bigger bathroom? How did it work? Was the master massive and the other bedrooms not so big? And just doesn't take that long to get a bit of a feel for what seems to be attractive and work in the local market. Yeah, and like a big thing that we learn is a lot of people are always, they're always comparing it back to sort of median house price in the area. So, you know, people have got the option and you've got a product that's at 700000 and you can buy an existing house in that area that is in not bad shape for 700000 And you know, Sometimes you're just running it too close. People like to see quite a bit of a saving sometimes going for the townhouse product over the, the house price. And obviously changes, you know, we've been doing a lot of research in Hawthorne East lately. And, and yeah, a lot of people are, are willing to take a townhouse that, that is high architectural spec but they want to pay 1.4 for it. You know, a lot of the, the average house prices in there are two and a half. So there's, there's families that just can't afford that two and a half that want to be in the area for schools. There's, there's downsizers that, you know, they want to cash in and, and set themselves up. And so there's just different criteria for different suburbs. So, um, yeah, when you're doing your research, really getting getting a map and sort of breaking it up into, you know, four different pockets within that suburb uh, is also quite important because that does change a lot. Yeah, it's true. There can definitely be different pockets within suburbs. One side of a road can be different to the other side of the road. Yeah, I mean, look, where, where I started was where I grew up. Um, you know, a lot of our projects were, were, were in Brooklyn, Westwood Gray, you know. So for me, I, I grew up in these streets, so I knew them really well. And I did find like you just sleep very well at night when you when you were in your own area. Yeah, um, you start start venturing out in, into different suburbs. It's a, it's a different level of research that you need to get into. Um, so yeah, I do find a lot of people tend to be more comfortable either in their in their own area. Or, or somewhere that they've looked into very carefully. 
Oh, so coming from west of Melbourne, does that mean you're a Bulldog supporter? Yeah, my whole family is. That's correct. Oh, um, well, we've got the grand final this weekend featuring the Bulldogs. It is, it is. Um, you know, I was predominantly into basketball growing up, so I was a bit of an outsider. Um, but, yeah, everyone's very excited for this weekend. That's that's okay. I'm sure they'll let you into the doghouse this weekend to join the team. <laughs> Assuming Melbourne uh, keeps it all together. <laughs> <laughs> so tell me, what's the best piece of advice that you've ever received? Look, I think it really is probably comes down to that land acquisition. Yeah, just really keep an eye on that percentage. Um, it's a really good, simple rule to stick to. Yeah. Very good. Well, Matthew, if people want to find out more about you, where should they head to? Um, yep, that's a good question. So um, Chamberlain Property is our website. Um, they're welcome to contact me via my email um, give that to you after the show but yeah they're the two places fantastic well it's been awesome to have you on the show at last i really appreciate you sharing some of your insights and wish you best for the upcoming projects no worries thanks justin appreciate your time good to talk to you matthew see you later You've been listening to the Property Developer Podcast. Tune in next time for more tips, ideas and inspiration to take your developing to the next level. For more developing love, make sure to visit propertydeveloperpodcast.com.